Section 16 of Unaddressed Letters by Anonymous, edited by Frank Athelstane Swettenham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of Death and Fiction It is delightful to have someone to talk to, with whom it is not necessary to think always before one speaks, to choose every word, to explain every thought. Someone, in fact, who has sympathy enough not to be bored with the discussion of a subject that deals neither with gossip nor garments, and intelligence enough to understand what is implied as well as what is said. I have done a good deal of desultory reading lately, mostly modern English and French fiction, and I cannot help being struck by the awkward manner in which authors bring their stories to a conclusion. It so very often happens that a book begins well, possibly improves as the plot develops, becomes even powerful as it nears the climax, and then, then the poor puppets, having played their several parts and done all that was required of them, must be got rid of, in order to round off the tale, to give finality and satisfy the ordinary reader's craving for full particulars. This varnishing and framing and hanging of the picture is usually arrived at by marrying or slaying some principal character. The first is a life, and the last a death sentence. Thus the reader is satisfied, and often the story is ruined. That is, if skillful drafting and true perspective are as necessary to a good picture as artistic coloring and the correct disposition of light and shade. But is the reader satisfied? Usually yes, occasionally no. In the latter case the book is closed with a strong sense of disappointment, and a conviction that the writer has realized the necessity of bringing down the curtain on a scene that finishes the play, and leaves nothing to the imagination. So to secure that end, he has abandoned truth and even probability, and has clumsily introduced the priest or the hangman, the cup of cold poison, or the ever-ready revolver. The effect of the charming scenery, the pretty frocks, the artistic furniture, and the crisp and sparkling dialogue is thus spoilt by the unreal and unconvincing denouement. It seems to me, to my stupid comprehension, as the polite Eastern constantly insists, that this failure is due to two causes. First, most fiction is founded on fact and the writer has, in history, in the newspapers, in his own experience, or that of his friends, met with some record or paragraph, some adventure or incident, that has served for the foundation of his story. But, unless purely historical, he has been obliged to supply the last seam himself, because in reality there was none, or if there was, he could not use it. In our own experience, in that of every one who has seen a little of the world, have we not become acquainted with quite a number of dramatic or even tragic incidents that have scarred our own or others' lives and would make stories of deep interest in the hands of a skillful writer? But the action does not cease. The altar is oftener the fateful beginning than the happy ending of the drama, and when the complications fall thick upon each other, there is no such easy way out of the impasse as that provided by a little prussic acid or a bullet. They are ready to hand, I grant you, but they are not so often used in life as in fiction. I have known a man walk about with a revolver in his pocket for three days looking for a suitable opportunity to use it upon himself, and then he has put it away against the coming of a burglar. When it is not yourself but someone else you desire to get rid of, the prospect is, strange to say, even less inviting. Thus it happens that, in real life, we suffer and we endure, 
the drama is played and the tragedy is in our hearts but it does not take outward and visible form so the fiction whilst it is true to life holds our interest and the skill of the artist excites our admiration but the impossible climax appeals to us no more than a five-legged cow it is a lucis naturae that is all they happen these monstrosities but they never live long and it were best to stifle them at birth pardon you say there is genius yes but it is rare and i have not the courage to even discuss genius it is like delhi and the planets a long way off we can only see it with the help of a powerful glass if indeed then it is visible there is only one writer who openly lays claim to it and the claim seems to be based chiefly on her lofty disdain for adverse criticism that is perhaps a sign but not complete proof of the existence of the divine fire but to return to the humbler minds it does happen that real lives are suddenly and violently ended by accident murder or suicide and there seems no special reason why fictitious lives should be superior to such chances indeed to some authors there would be no more pleasure in writing novels without the tragic element as the main feature then there is for some great billiard exponents to play the game with the spot-stroke bard. I would only plead in this case that the accident or the suicide to be lifelike need not be very far-fetched. In murder, as one knows, the utmost license is not only permissible but laudable, for the wildest freaks of imagination will hardly exceed the refinements, the devilish intention, and the cold-blooded execution of actual crimes. I remember you once spoke scornfully of using a common form of accident as a means of getting rid of a character in fiction. But surely that is not altogether inartistic, for the accidents that occur most commonly are those to which people of romance will naturally be as liable as you or I. It is difficult to imagine that you should be destroyed by an explosion in a coal mine or that I should disappear in a balloon. But we might either of us be drowned or killed in a railway accident under any one of a variety of probable circumstances. Again, in suicide, the simplest method is, for purposes of fiction, in all likelihood the best. Men usually shoot themselves, and women, especially when they cannot swim, seek the water. Those who prefer poison are probably the swimmers. It is a common practice in fiction to make the noble-minded man who loves the lady, but finds himself in the way of what he believes to be her happiness, that is, of course, some other man, determined to destroy himself, and he does it with admirable resolution, considering how cordially he dislikes the role for which he has been cast, and how greatly he yearns for the affection which no effort of his can possibly secure. I cannot, however, remember any hero of fiction who has completed the sacrifice of his life in a thoroughly satisfactory manner, for he invariably leaves his body lying about, where it is sure to attract attention, and cause great distress to the lady he designs to oblige. That is thoughtless, and those who really mean to prove their self-denial should arrange not only to extinguish their lives, but to get rid of their bodies, so that there may be as little scandal and trouble to their friends as possible. I have always felt the sincerest admiration for the man who, having made up his mind to destroy himself, and purchased a revolver with which to do the deed, settled his affairs, moved into lodgings quite close to a cemetery, wrote letters to the coroner, the doctor, and the undertaker, giving them in each case the exact hour at which they should call on their several errands, paid all his debts, left something to indemnify his landlady, and more than enough for funeral expenses, and then shot himself. 
That, however, was not a character in fiction, but a common mortal, and there was no lady in the case. I am sure there are many people who would be greatly obliged to me for inviting attention to these matters, if only they could get it in print, to lie about on the table with the page turned down at the proper place. Nothing is more common than the determined suicides who live to a green old age for want of a book of instructions. These people weary their friends and acquaintances by eternally reiterating threats that they will destroy themselves, and yet, however desirable that course may be, they never take it. This novel, and brilliant idea, first comes to them in some fit of pique, and they declare that they will make an end of themselves, and then perhaps you will be sorry. They are so pleased with the effect caused by this statement that, on the next favorable opportunity, they repeat it, and then they go on and on, dragging in their wretched threat on every possible and impossible occasion, especially in the presence of strangers and the aged relatives of themselves, or the person they want to get at, until mere acquaintances wish they would fulfill their self-imposed task and cease from troubling. It is almost amusing to hear how these suicides determines vary from day to day or week to week. The methods with which they selected for their own destruction, poison, pistols, drowning, throwing themselves out of the window or under a train, nothing comes amiss, but when they wish to be really effective and carry terror into the hearts of their hearers, they usually declare either that they will blow their brains out or cut their throats. The vision of either of these processes of self-extinction, even though remote and unsubstantial, is well calculated to curdle the blood. That, as a rule, is all that is meant, and when you understand it, the amusement is harmless, if it is not exactly kind. Vain repetitions are distinctly wearying, even when they come from husbands and wives, parents or children. The impassioned lover, too, is not altogether free from the threat of suicide and the repetition of it. In all these cases it would be a kindness to those who appear weary of life, and who weary others by threatening to put an end to it, if they could be persuaded either to follow the example of the man who, without disclosing his intentions, took a room by the gate of the cemetery, or if they don't really mean it to say nothing more about it. Therefore, if ever you are over-tried in this way, leave this letter where it will be read. The weak point about the prescription is that it is more likely to cure than to kill. However, I must leave that to you, for a good deal depends on how the remedy is applied. The size of the dose, the form of application, whether external or internal, will make all the difference in the world. I do not prescribe for a patient, but for a disease. The rest may safely be left to your admirable discretion. But you will not forget that a dose which can safely and advisedly be administered to an adult may kill a child. End of section 16